the Forged and Unbroken podcast. Do you know what probably my favorite memory is of you? What's that? It's when we were at the same house together at eight and they were putting security cameras throughout the entire firehouse. You were working there that time? Yeah. And everybody was up in arms because they're like, what are they doing with these security cameras? Like, obviously it's for our protection or whatever's going on, but you know, it always makes you a little uneasy. Like what, what are they doing with it? So the firefighters thought it would be amazing to go to Home Depot, get the security camera that you can purchase that's fake, but you just put in a nine volt battery, make it light up like it's actually working. And we installed it right above your bunk. <laughs> so we would turn the corner and you'd just be sitting there in full uniform on top of your bed, just mean mugging this thing. Cause you're like, oh, how's this? This isn't right. You can't put a security camera like in top of like over top of our sleeping quarters. This is, this is bullshit. And we got a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah. Oh, there was a lot of people in on that. <laughs> that little joke wasn't there. The night it happened, uh, uh, <laughs> there were some people that came into the punk room, and then I noticed it, and I went to the lieutenant on the shift there at the time, which was, he was cooking dinner, and I said, what the heck is in my punk room? <laughs> and he goes, what? And I said, why is that camera in my bunk room? <laughs> and he goes, what camera? I said, there's a camera in my sleeping quarters. <laughs> and uh, so, of course, there was another captain that was in on that, too. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he says, I got I to gotta call this captain and get to the bottom of this. Well, I called and I said, what's this, what's this camera in my room for? And he goes, well... Oh, he was supposed to install it on the outside of the building. He installed it inside, Ronnie? Yeah. <laughs> so um, well, let me see if I can get a hold of him. Well, it's a Friday at 5.30 in the evening. And he goes, I don't know if I'll be able to get him or not. <laughs> and at that point, the lieutenant was looking at it, and he pulled it off the wall at that yeah, point. Right. And I'm like, oh. And, and he says, what happened? I said, I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. No, I'll take care of it. <laughs> And at that point, I realized that it was a battery-operated fake uh-huh. camera. Yeah, it was yes. probably the best, like, 20 bucks we spent yeah. at Home Depot. Yeah, we got a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah. <clears throat> but you're uh, you're an OG from PG County. Um, I just heard a fun fact. PG County is the 16th busiest fire department in the nation, mm-hmm. which I, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I knew it was up there. I didn't know it was in the top, like, 20 um, that's where you started, well, lived and volunteered, correct? I grew up in Anne Arundel County, right on the PG, Anne Arundel County line, okay. Davidsonville. And uh, I tried to start out as an Anne Arundel volunteer. Didn't really get a lot of uh, guidance, Yeah, um, believe it or not, that I would graduate from South River High School. Mike Cox, mm-hmm. who became the fire chief in Anne Arundel County okay. for a couple of years. Now he's the Miffery director. We were in English together at, at one time, and he was the one that tried to get me to join Woodland Beach. Yeah. And I tried there for a while. I just wasn't getting really what I needed, so I went to Prince George's County, mm-hmm. uh, joined the Bowie, Bowie Volunteer Fire Department Company 43, right there in Pointer Ridge, in 1985. Oh, um, wow. I went to their 32-hour volunteer recruit school at the time, down to Sheltonham. Yeah. The uh, at the time Sheltonham was it was just starting down the, their training facility mm-hmm. was just starting because a lot of the 
the classes were at Mifri in College Park. So there was two trailers. There was a burn uh, building, a little Quonset hut, which was filled with smoke for the maze, and uh, the repelling tower was a 53-foot tractor trailer that they could put down horizontally and raise it up vertically. Oh, wow. And uh, so that was basically just enough to get you in trouble. Yeah, right, right. Get you what you needed. But get you in trouble, too, as far as, you know, I'm 19 years old, uh, 18, I'm thinking uh, you know, I'm invincible. and Right. But um, so I did that. It was two straight weekends, so Saturday, Sunday for two straight weekends. Um, I had a guy named Sergeant Mack, who was the, the uh, Sarge, career sergeant who taught that, along with uh, Technus and Joyce. They taught the latter portion. And uh, so you wore a red helmet. Mm-hmm. I was the only person in my class that had a New Yorker helmet because I told them I'm not wearing that turtle shell. I will go somewhere else until they give me a regular New Yorker helmet. And of course they told me, well, you can only wear that for six more months and then you have to turn it in. And I said, I don't care. I'm not wearing that turtle shell. That's right. PG went through that era where you had to wear that. The Metro. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so then I went to basic class, basic fire, which was the notebook with the sketchy drawings um, in 1985, 86. Um, we were fortunate enough to have a basic class right at Station 43, so all we had to mm-hmm. do was go up the steps. Um, oh, yeah, an instructor named Bob Rose, who retired from Anne Arundel County. I think he still might work for Mifri today. Yeah. Um, in their uh, certification yeah, yeah. spot. Um, and then, you know, I always wanted to be a career fireman for Prince George's County. That was my dream job. Uh, tried multiple times, came out well qualified, but was never chosen. So I said, somebody can't even, why don't you try the EMS side and you can laterally transfer over once you get your foot in the door. So in 1987, I took the test and got hired in 88. I was a member of recruit class, paramedic recruit class number six. Uh, at the time, that was only a nine-week academy for them. Wow. Well, the first three weeks were your EMT, so I was already certified as an EMT. So they put me in the field. I went to Rescue Three, which ran a Company Twenty Six District Heights. Okay. Inside the Capitol Beltway, yeah. And um, basically, it was a BLS ambulance, and you ran anywhere from Largo to all the way down Southern Avenue and Oxon Hill. You ran wherever yeah, yeah. they needed you. Wow. Um, so I graduated. And I went back to Company 26, and I was there for from 1988 until I left in July 19th of 1989. Um, the year we were there, we ran 5,535 ambulance calls that year. Jeez. We were very, we made Firehouse Magazine, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. We were very busy. I mean, we were, there was many nights that the garage door went up at 12 midnight, and I didn't Pushed the button again until 6 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. We were gone consistently, hours at a time. Um, and at the time, back then, you basically rode the BLS unit for a year, and then you went to CRT school, which is kind of equivalent to the EMTI program. That, yeah. And uh, so it was shift work. It was 24-72. And at the time, a lot of Prince George County still had a, a very heavy volunteer presence throughout yeah, the sure. county. So it was a lot of day work on the fire side. Basically, the top two recruits 
when they graduated, they usually went down to Oxon Hill, and they got put on shift work right away. Um, so I didn't want I didn't want the day work stuff. I yeah. wanted the shift work to twenty four seventy two. So I decided, oh, I'll become a paramedic, you know, and see what happens, you know. But unfortunately, I thought the grass was a little greener <laughs> somewhere else, and. I was only making nineteen thousand dollars a year. <laughs> <laughs> a little different now. <laughs> yes, just a little different. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to get married, so I saw Howard County had a opening, mm -hmm. and uh, three thousand dollar raise to twenty two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> so I started their academy on August seventh, nineteen eighty nine. I was a member of recruit class number six. Six. Okay, <clears throat> I was probably not. Maybe a little earlier. I I um, had a professor that was a Howard police chief for a little while. It may have been the late seventies. Now, granted, this police side, I feel like they always did a little bit better though, salary wise. I remember him saying that when you got your job application and you're you're, you're filling out all of like the tax paperwork, mm -hmm. or whatever. They also had the application for food stamps because you technically qualified if you were just working that job. Mm -hmm. So you filled out both. Yeah. Um, and that was just the era of public safety, you know, 70s and 80s. Uh, um, believe it or not, you know, when you got your paycheck, we had a short check and a big check because our checks weren't averaged. Yeah, right. And we were working at 50, 56 or 58 hour work week. Yeah. So my big check was $532 <laughs> and my short check was regularly 237 but if you had a kelly day on it, it was 207 oh wow and we had a mortgage and two house car and two payments uh car payments at the time right right so you really had to spend your money wisely <laughs> and we had that until about 1992 was when they finally averaged the paychecks nice so okay. we consistently had the same amount of pay every two weeks but yeah i used to ask uh we didn't have sergeants or we had first classes back then. Um, they're equivalent, I guess, to today's lieutenant. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, we had lieutenants, but we had first class. They were like the senior firefighter. Whenever the lieutenant was off, the first class were at the seat. Yeah. And uh, I would always say to him, is this the short check or the big check week? Because I would lose track. <laughs> And he would tell me, this is a short check, Ronnie. I'm like, oh, oh man. man. Yeah, you, yeah, don't go ham on the, uh, uh -uh. the big check week. No. You know, you so, got to let that spread out. Yeah. So uh, those are some of the changes that have happened since sure. you know, when I got hired. Uh, I guess in, in uh, also the apparatus color changes we were going through at that time. Uh, I got through recruit school and I was assigned to Engine 8, which is the Bethany station. Mm -hmm. Back then, Bethany wasn't a very big, sta uh, busy station. It was more farmland where there's today there's houses all over the place of that fire station. But right. We could put a a big hunting flashlight on the field and watch 50 deer cross Route 99 every <laughs> night. I mean, there was just herds of them. Yeah. Um, and, of course, ones that were hit, they got gutted in the host tower at Station 8, too. I saw many deer gutted there. <laughs> Only hung some hose, but we gutted deer back there too. Right, right. It was so, a little different uh, back then. Yes, um, and uh, but that the apparatus was making its changes <clears throat> at that point from slime lime to the white okay. with the red stripe. But our backup engine, which was eighty one, which is an American La France, which was a manual transmission, <laughs> so you had to learn how to drive a manual transmission, and it was a slime lime color. But the front line engine eighty two was white mm -hmm. with the red stripe. 
we did have a truck there. It was an American LaFrance truck. Uh, it was truck two before it was truck eight. Mm-hmm. And the original truck two was red. And then they went from red to slime on yellow. And then, so it wasn't staff, but it did get put on certain uh, calls. And it was kind of, it was shared status. Essentially, it was right? shared status today. Yeah. And I got clear to drive that. I couldn't drive it as well as some aunt, some people that I knew that, that could really wheel it, but I could get it out the door and get it where it needed to be and get back safely with it. But it had to play in the steering wheel like three inches. I mean, it's just... Right, right. You're just bouncing all over. Bouncing all over the place. And um, so, because back then, if you didn't have your license within the first year, they were looking to get rid of you. Yeah, you had to be um, on it. Our academy was 14 weeks long yeah. back then and now it's seven almost eight months now yeah um well there was With, in 9 11 oh. there was no hazmat the hazmat was just getting popular mm-hmm. um but we didn't have pumps in our class and we didn't have the driving in our class so yeah. they cut it down because the county was booming at that point with construction with homes and businesses and basically classes five six seven and eight were bang 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 just like mm-hmm. that um i made the Fourth man at station eight. Mm. So uh, the ambulance goes out the door with two. It's you and the lieutenant, two men. Um, and there was times I was driving the lieutenant with two men. It was just myself yeah, and the lieutenant. Um, we were about 150. We were about 150 strong at that point when we graduated. Okay. So, More than I thought. So. Um, and now we're over 600, like sworn. I know there's well over 500. Mm-hmm. Maybe even approaching six. It's close just to union, six. yeah. Um, not in, including you know the management, and all the chief mm-hmm. officers. Yeah. Station ten had opened about a year and a half before <clears> we got out. Okay. It, that was the newest station at the time. Um, now of course the Savage the Savage stations were red fire engines. The counties were were the white. Yeah. Um, we were buying E one equipment back then, whereas today they buy I think anything that's Offers them a good hands on, deal. right? <laughs> but it was predominantly E1. Um, um, let's see. Oh, we <laughs> just really quick. Um, I haven't really done this before. Just point of reference. You know, you were PG County, so bordering the nation's capital. Howard is just one. The next one up, right? Mm-hmm. PG is the south. Mm-hmm. You've got Anne Arundel, which is Maryland's capital for, for Annapolis City, mm-hmm. on the what southeast kind of side. You go north, you got Baltimore County, and then if you're in the furthest northeast corner, depending on the box area that gets dispatched, if it's a box alarm, we could get a Baltimore City engine sure. on it. So we're talking 20 minutes. You know, you're in the heart of Baltimore City, and if there's, that's the thing, if there's enough traffic and you drive south on 29, I mean, you can be in the nation's capital in mm-hmm. another 20 or 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. So just geographically, central Maryland, but, um, you got two major cities within 20 minutes of each other, you know, north and south. That's how I, when I, when I talk to people where I retired, where I work, they, I, I give them as a landmark, I say, between Baltimore City and the District of Columbia, <clears throat> right off Interstate 95. Yeah. That's kind of where we were located. Yeah. And yeah. When we say in between, we're, yeah. yeah and we had drive. two interstates that ran through our county, Interstate 70, Interstate 95. But I, a lot of yeah. people will reference 95. They'll know when I say that, they'll know, yeah. especially where I'm living now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, just give people a yeah, geographic understanding of where we're talking about. Um, so you're out of the academy, you're at Station 8, Ellicott City. 
some people know about like Main Street, Ellicott City, which mm-hmm. is, you know, the next do over, but mm-hmm. you're still on the border of Baltimore County. Mm-hmm. Um, it has transitioned, like you said, greatly over the years. Um, we have Route 40 corridor going through there, and that's changed an incredible amount. Um, very uh, just diverse area, mm-hmm. socioeconomically incredibly diverse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we endearingly say from the ghettos to the meadows, it's there's <laughs> there's a lot going on in Columbia and Ellicott City. Yes, you know, there you got the urban sprawl. You still have some country, mm-hmm. and you've got everything in between. Mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty wild place to work. Mm-hmm. You can be in a ten thousand square foot mansion, or you can be in um, you know the HUD urban development mm-hmm. housing. All in the same first two. Off Ellicott Mills Road. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a wild it's a wild mix now. So um eighties, I mean, you're going through well, especially in PG, were you still volunteering at the time? Once you got into Howard? No. I went back for a short time. I was living in Ellicott City and mm-hmm. uh I went back in ninety one. Was it ninety one I went back and uh I rode one call and the driver that was driving, the volunteer driver that was driving, I just, no, I don't feel safe with this. And my career is more important than that. And I left. Yeah. And I never went back. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you got to make those decisions. It was, just, it was the best. It was, and the, the guys that I came in with, um, we all went career different. One went to DC, two went to PG. I went to Howard. Um, one went to Anne Arundel. Um, some went to the airport authority. There was about a clan of about eight of us that we all came in together and we all kind of left together. Yeah. And when I went back in 91, they were still doing it to a certain extent, but you know, I was having to drive 45 minutes to get down there. And I'm like, this really isn't worth it anymore. And I stopped. Yeah, sure. So now you were, uh, obviously in the field for a long time serving as a paramedic at what point was it was it your decision to transition to the academy so in 05 i was a lieutenant working in engine nine i got promoted in 2002 spent three years in engine nine um yeah uh i mean that's like a four thousand run engine i mean has been pretty consistently high. It was, high it was over 3,500 a year at the time. Yeah. Uh, we were close to 38, I think, when I was there. Yeah. And uh, Chief Loomis called me. He said, uh, hey, would you be willing to come to the training academy? And I said, sure. I said, but who's going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, this person's going to be there. I'm going to be there. You know, I'm like, let me talk it over with my wife. And, yeah, I'm interested. Okay. Because I always had a desire to do one, just yeah. to do one, you know. I wasn't a principal instructor, but just to be there to help, I was always willing to do that. So in April, well, actually in March of 2005, uh, I was transferred to the training academy. And on April 11th, <laughs> you started about a week later. Yeah, yeah. As a member of Class 20, that's how I met you. April and 2005. April 11th, 2005 is when Class 20 started. Mm-hmm. And you were about a week later. Yep. and. The rest is history, I guess. So we were running two classes consistently, consecutively. We had 20 downstairs, and then a couple weeks later, 21 started upstairs. Yeah, we overlapped. Yep. They were overlapped um, because um, 
the CRU was doing the EMT with Lieutenant Spittle and Shimer, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Brenda Bonzel. They were doing EMT while you guys were finished work, getting ready to start fire. Yeah. And uh, so I was very busy. I did a lot of up and down the steps, <laughs> the first floor, second floor, because yeah. I was the logistics guy for that for those two classes. Well, for about a quarter of 21, because mm-hmm. um, I did all your class, and then um, I did about a quarter of 21 because I got promoted to captain. Yeah, during the academy. During, right? When you yeah. guys graduated, <clears throat> I, I made captain that, that October when y'all. Yeah, okay. Well, August, of, August I made captain, but... I stayed. I was still yeah. a captain when y'all were done. When y'all were finishing up, I was a captain. Yeah. Then. Yes, you're done with sixty-ish, give or take, trainees. Yeah, it was. Oh, it was yeah. a big class because I think we graduated with twenty-seven with twenty, twenty-seven yeah, started or twenty-eight. Like started a, with thirty-five. Yeah, in the thirties. Yeah, and um, I think twenty-one graduated with about twenty some. Yeah. Um, but I predominantly spent most of my time with you guys, mm-hmm. um, and. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good time. A it good was time. it was enjoyable experience. It was one of the hardest times because we didn't have an academy, and yeah, uh, we're operating out of the old school. Yes, Captain Henry and I were, you know, getting at the yard at four thirty in the morning, getting the apparatus, getting it to Anne Arundel, wherever we were going that day, and um, it was a long day for the instructors. We were really, it was from four thirty to almost seven o'clock at night sometimes, especially when we were going to a different site because we had to get you guys back and then we had to you know clean it up and then we had to leave and, yeah um it was a lot of logistically it was a lot of moving parts that we uh, we had to do yeah. to make it happen and of course in 2007 we were fortunate enough to have our own academy and that's where they've all been since then but right. um i too when i was in the academy there was no howard county training academy we borrowed people's academies and we were in utilities back then mm-hmm. utilities and on apparatus and that's how we went to carroll county that's how we went to anne arundel county kind of like what you guys did a little yeah. bit we had our own bus yeah you had, well, <laughs> you had a bus, bus back then there, yeah the bus had broke when our when, in class five that's why we weren't on the bus so we had to borrow utilities and of course there was a couple of volunteers in my academy class that they would snag their volunteer utilities, and I would ride with them. And, mm-hmm. But if you're on the apparatus, usually when we pulled into the training ground, every now and then they would start barking out orders and throwing ladders and doing this and doing that. So yeah, yeah, right. they kind of put every they mixed everybody up so they got a, a piece of that action. Yeah, gotcha. Um, <clears throat> now I know I'm skipping forward a little bit, so if there's anything I missed, let me know. But you know, <clears throat> we both had our uh like growth periods you know i'm coming out of the academy 05 um i go to savage route one corridor and then i bounce around the boulevard and then the columbia for a little bit and then we both end up at the same firehouse i get promoted newly promoted lieutenant this would have been 2013 and i get assigned to engine eight where you came out and um you were the ems supervisor Hmm. i want to talk about the command components a little bit because there were times, well, let's say the leadership for us, like our immediate in the field leadership could sometimes be a little inexperienced. And we weren't the busiest firehouse, but if we're going out the road, you would pick up calls quite often and be the initial command structure, which was a godsend. <clears throat> there were plenty of times where you set the tone for a lot of working fires. Um, and 
there were also times where the chief officers would get there and be like, you just keep going. <laughs> and that was a mass of massive benefit to us. Let's talk about the leadership side of that. How did you, looking back, how did you develop that? Because you had this incredible sense of calm. You're a very organized person, but you're also not just looking down at a tax sheet. Like you're doing that, but you're also able to zoom out and ensure that we have what we need and you're making sure conditions matches what the reports are saying and what you have on scene. Where did that development come? Uh, that started, I think, uh, actually, the companies that I worked with in 1993, um, I was still at eight. Um, Charlie Sharp had been promoted to lieutenant. Jeff Loomis had been promoted to sergeant. It's a while ago. And those guys, I, I say this, I mean, I was fortunate enough to work with, have two good, very good stints in my career where I learned a lot from my officers. And that was the time with Charlie and Jeff and the time at seven with Barry Bennett and Dave O'Neill. Yeah, super squared away guys. Those, those guys, um, Charlie, you know, he was no nonsense. You knew, you knew what to expect from him, what you expected from him and what he expected of you. But he could also, if you had questions, he could teach you this on your level yeah. of understanding. And Jeff was just, you know, Jeff was just, he, he, you know, would get on your nerves at times, but he was, he would, he could teach you anything too. And he had yeah. the patience. And uh, so I learned a lot from them, their mannerisms, how they handled themselves, the way they ran calls. Um, and then when we got to seven in 97, we had a great shift. I mean, we had Barry Bennett as a captain, Dave O'Neill as a lieutenant, uh, myself, Dwayne Abbott, Danny Natoli, Joe Golden, yeah. Kenny Risley, um, future leaders of the department down the line. Yeah, sure. And we were a – and, of course, we were we had a little cockiness to us, but we were good. And <laughs> um, But Barry set the tone because he instilled a lot of confidence in you he trusted your judgment and uh but the little things he was training he was training me for years later i mean i was doing payroll i was doing this i was doing that yeah and um you know with being a paramedic you know there's a stigmatism that's it was still there that you know there's no way you could be a good firefighter you're okay. an ambulance guy you know and that but with Barry that wasn't the case and Dave they I mean, there was times where um, we didn't have drivers yet. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody was could drive. They had backup drivers, and there was a couple paramedics that came through. That you know, why why is Lagana driving? You know, because he can drive, right? And he's going to drive, and um, because we were still running three man engines at that point, and um, so I would tell these guys that came through, you know, get your license so you can learn how to drive and pump. I mean, that's it's another skill. It's it's going to help you so you're not riding the ambulance as much as you think you are. Right. Um, but when I, I guess, you know, I, I observed and learned a lot and uh, worked with John Fisher in the mid-90s with Bill Roser. Those were, you know, guys that they molded you back then. It's, you know. Um, a lot of those guys, <clears throat> excuse me, also had uh, – military experience like vietnam war era 
and then some even the early side of Iraq and Afghanistan war experience. Sure. I mean, my first lieutenant was a Vietnam vet. Yeah. I mean, point blank. Yeah. Like uh, in the middle of shit, like not just yeah. a green zone, like hellfire <laughs> yeah. no, yeah. and brimstone exactly. war. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and those guys, you know, they saw the worst of the worst. And um, so I really took my, you know, when I went to the classes, I, I really paid attention. But, you know, when I was done, I would go home and look at houses and say, oh, if this is on fire, what are you going to do? Yeah. Because I knew I was going to beat the battalion chief to certain areas at times. Yeah. I knew that. And um, it's just the way that where we were set up when we, when we were working together. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had a couple stints as an actor and stuff like that, so I'd had a taste of it. And uh, Chief side, you mean? Yes. Yeah, because you were a captain at this yes. point. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, but you know when when it went out the door when the box dropped we went out the door i knew i was going to be first there and i knew i had to set a tone for it like you said yeah um and i took the responsibility seriously i had to do it Mm -hmm. you had a company that you needed to stay with there's no you know i had it yeah and you know i can remember the first that sunday morning we had the fire in turf valley yeah yeah i mean (laughs) The chief got in the vehicle and I said, I just took one look and I said, run staging and give me what I ask for and don't question me. <laughs> and I had it. I had yeah. it under control. <clears throat> you and, did. And, um, you know, and of course, you know, there was some riffraff back on that and some of the other management chiefs. Well, that's not Lagana's first rodeo. Yeah, no. Um, no, I remember that fire. I mean, that thing was cranking. It was a bigger home. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a bigger home. It was a nicer home. And it was, uh, you know, early summer. I think they were out because were people were graduating or it was church or something. Yeah. Um, I mean, this bigger two-story home, we go on scene, and it's, it's, it's mowing through pretty good. And I remember, you know, I'm first officer. I'm doing 360s. I'm going around to the backside. I radio it to you. You're the initial command structure. And um, something that came out of that that I really appreciated from you was I it was going down the road where they were getting ready to lay the hammer on me because they said, he didn't do a 360. And I was like, yeah, I did. I, I radioed it. You acknowledged it. And it got to the point to where they were going to get make an example out of me. And I actually had to pull the audio to prove that yeah, I did the 360 here's Captain Lagana <laughs> acknowledging it and repeating it over the radio but there were battalion's assistants and deputies getting ready to just yeah do paperwork and make an example of me and that's something I've appreciated from you was that <clears throat> not only did certain chiefs not even want to touch the fire you had it you had control of it we made a very big problem with um, a lot of curveballs Mm-hmm. you made those problems go away for us um you also had the people's back and i ap- always appreciated that because um no questions asked you went to bat for the people on the ground and for me and it yeah it was kind of a pain to have to go through the process of mm-hmm. pulling actual audio mm-hmm. to defend the company but um but no i i appreciate that because it's it can be easy to just roll right over but you didn't do that and you would take care of the people. No. And, and I, 
I'm a believer in, you know, if, if you need to do the right thing and if it's not, it might not be the popular thing, but if it's the right thing, you stand up for it. Those are leaders. Yeah. Those are leaders. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, and I always would, I think when we did pull in together, I would say EMS two to A two. Do you want me to take it from you? You're going to keep it, and you would just pass it right away. And yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I had no my, part of it. I mean, I had my own command sheets in the EMS two car, so I yeah. had it all laid out. And, yeah, and I knew when I was going out with you guys, if it was any, I was going to have it. I knew that. Yeah, and I think you knew that too. Yeah, you would pick up calls that sounded like they would expand. Yeah. To protect us and it also selfishly allowed me to be able to get inside quicker which yes. i also appreciate yes it kept your crew together integrity yeah. together and and you know so yeah um no that was those are good learning experiences for me as a new lieutenant and that was a uh, with a lot of struggles that you face being a new officer that was one thing that i never had to worry about so i always appreciated that yeah we had a couple closed discussions we did yeah <laughs> <laughs> there are definitely plenty of times where that door would close. You know, it's after dinner, everybody's in bed, like, hey, let's talk. <laughs> I remember one vividly. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of them. And sometimes it was you, like, hey, listen, I got your back on this, but, or um, you'd yank me up, or like, hey, watch out for this thing. You mm-hmm. know, there was a lot of good, frank conversations that, uh, yeah, stuck with me and helped. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> we kind of split ways a little bit. I started moving around. Um, I went on a little detail float throughout the county, eventually found my way back to seven. And you were also, you ended up transitioning to the safety officer, safety car, right? Mm-hmm. 2017. Um, this is 2017. Okay. So it would have been January of 2018 when I made my way back to downtown Columbia. And as the engine seven lieutenant, uh, you're the captain in safety one and we only have one. Mm-hmm. So you're the countywide safety officer. So I, I mean, are you ready to make that switch or am I missing anything to uh woodscape? No, we can get into woodscape. Yeah. Now we don't have to necessarily get into like the nitty gritty details. Um, you know, we have the podcast with chief Bean mm-hmm. and with Andy Hoffman about like what happened at mm-hmm. Woodscape, but we experienced our own line of duty, mm-hmm. you know, July 23rd of 2018. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, I mean, talk about it from your perspective. We, you know, it's an early morning fire in an 8,400 square foot home. And it started as a local box that ended up getting upgraded. So only had half of a box alarm until we got the full box alarm. I'm third in engine and together with truck seven, you know, we're the RIT team going in to get Nate Flynn. Um, and I mean, curveball after curveball after just crazy unknowns, like deep seated fire, like you're the safety officer. So, I mean, let's let's talk this out. I mean, I was, you know, like you said, behind. I was behind the eight ball because I was dispatched so late. <laughs> um, we had had that, you know, thunderstorm that came through that woke me up, of course, and um, then they they hit for battalion one, and I go back to bed, and AVL had just been instituted at that point, yeah. and I thought I'd been like I told you, I thought I'd been sleeping for hours, and it was like eight minutes, and it was set four or five minutes, and then boom, my lamp lights, and 
And I just happened to look out in the engine bay and I see the chief's car is gone. Like, Boy, he got out the door fast. And uh, so we get, you know, we're going down the road. EMS one and safety one are going down the road together. And uh, we get there and I had parked, I was parked up on the hill part portion. I couldn't get any really close. I didn't want to block any apparatus in. And I just looked at the house and you could just see the lazy smoke that was coming out of the house at that point. Yeah. The fire wasn't showing itself anywhere. But I had a very uncomfortable rumble in my, my gut Yeah. that I had not had in probably 15 years. And that was the night that uh, Chief Loomis went down the Patapsco River. I was working that night at 7. Okay. And... When that happened, when the, we had a boat at seven at the point at that point, um, Captain Ricker and I believe it was D. Virgilio went on that to get. And when they left, I had this strange stomach feeling in my stomach, and they left to me in black and white. Hmm. And of course, you know, half hour later, we're woken up. Everybody get up. Chief Loomis is, you know. He's at shock trauma. He slipped on a rock. He floated down the river. And, and, you know, the rest is on the film, of course. Yeah. So I had not had that until that night of the night, of course, the night of Nate's fire. And uh, I was putting my pack on. And I was just like, oh, this doesn't seem right. Something is off. And, um,. At that point, I can remember you hearing talking to command. You know, do we need to lay in coming in? Yeah, and, water supply confusion. Yes, and uh, I remember Chief Rizzo, Chief Rizzo, you know, yes, you guys, and you lay out from lay in from there, and you guys actually passed me. I don't know if you remember that. You passed I me. I don't. Yeah, I was walking down the street and I'm watching the hose pay off, and and uh, so I did everything that I always normally did when I'm on an incident. I checked in with command and I threw my tag on the dash and I looked at chief the chief and I would usually tell him which way I'm going to start my 360 my safety 360 um it still had this really omen feeling it's just it was almost like it was you know I just couldn't it just something was off yeah and uh I looked at him I said I'm going this way and I started on the right side, and of course, put them down maybe 30 feet on side delta. And then that, you know, that sound you don't ever want to hear mayday, mayday, mayday. Mm-hmm. He's in the basement, he's in the basement. So, uh, proceeded around to the basement slider, opened it up. Nothing, there was anything you could tell it was on fire. Yeah. Everything's still like it is in your house today. Oh, it's still pretty clear at that point. No smoke, no nothing. <clears throat> Proceed in a little bit, yelling for Nate, of course, and don't hear anything. And, you know, I go around a corner, that corner, that right-hand corner portion, and I'm like, eh. Nobody knows I'm back here. I, I better. So I got out and I closed the slider. And at that point, uh, you know, there's there's massive confusion at this point. The radio traffic is so yeah. I'm trying to decipher how many people do we have trapped, you know, where are they? Um, 
you know, the, the red team had been deployed at that point. Um, and I can remember hearing people coming, you know, you coming from the left and the truck crew coming from the right. Yeah. And, uh, chief being at that point, come around that, that side. And, uh, and, you know, I looked at you and I looked at Jimmy. I said, you guys got a plan. And you were conversing at that point. You and Captain Love were talking. And, and there was a little bit of confusion. You know, somebody needed a cylinder, so I changed them out. And there was more crews coming around at that point. It was, you know, but you two guys, your companies were the main ones that were going, you know, that was yeah. going in. And, um, so there was some confusion again of accountability, but I knew who was back there, and yeah. uh, so I knew at that point I was the gatekeeper for that doorway. Okay, I wasn't going anywhere because mm. uh, I was the gate. I was the gatekeeper at that point, and um, there were some you know crews that came around that were having issues, and I was just like, "You need to go over there." And at one point we had you know we were looking for potentially three people yes yeah we we had multiple firefighters unaccounted for at one point and i know that's what was holding up the writ team because we didn't know we had multiple missing firefighters in potentially different locations and one of them that was supposedly missing went right past you and i and i noticed the back of his helmet and i grabbed him yeah and pulled him right out there's between his door and I looked at him and I said, go over there and sit down. You're one of the ones we're looking for. Oh, wow. And I said, do not move. Yeah. And then there was another, you know, not only do we have this going down, we're having problems on the outside trying to get the companies, you know, with malfunctioning equipment. Mm. So I'm tasked with. I tell the lieutenant, you're one man down because he's got a malfunction on his SCBA. Go over there. Yeah, you're out. Um, Interesting. And then you guys proceeded in. And, you know, like I said, I was the gatekeeper of that door at that point. Yeah. And uh, now I think we were interior for, if I remember the time stamps correctly, 15 minutes from the time we entered to the time we were bringing Nate out. It was mm-hmm. 15 minutes total. Um, you know, metabolically, one of the hardest things I've ever done physically, mentally, emotionally, mm-hmm. you know, we're all low on air. Um, it was a pretty wild experience. And like I said, there's a, you know, you can listen to the other podcasts to do a deeper dive on that for the 15 minutes while we were inside. What are things that you are trying to accomplish? Basically at that point, um, I wanted to make sure you had a clear path to come. You guys had a clear path to come out in. Yeah. Um, I wanted to make sure, you know, the EMS officer at that time I went to fire school with, great guy. He had his, they had, they had all the equipment ready for Nate to come out. Yeah. To provide the care that he needed. Um, and, you know, it was just the waiting game for you guys to get them. Um, mm-hmm. And like we've talked about before, when, you know, when I heard you guys coming, you, you all were exhausted. I know that the bells were going off. I knew you were exhausted. Like, I've 
I mean, the most exhausted person I've ever seen in my life was you that night. I mean, it was just trashed. You're done. Yeah. And of course, you know, there was another gentleman that came in and, and assisted to get him all the way out of the, of the structure. And there was a pull out back. <laughs> and yeah. you know, he kept pulling and pulling out. Stop. I don't want to end up in the pool because then, then, we're, then we're really in a bad situation. Um, yeah, it's 3 a.m. The pool, like you said, it ended up getting flooded. The water had flooded over. And, and it, it kind of hid the pool. It hid the pool. And we didn't know how far, you know. And I knew we were getting close. Yeah. And um, at that point, the the members did a great job. They, they shifted gears. They got what they needed to do to take care of Nate at that point. Yeah. Um, and so he's packaged. And uh, at that point... You know, from my aspect, I have to change gears because everything he had on his body is evidence now. Most people don't consider this 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 side of a uh, of a line of duty, and especially you being the safety officer. You know, I'm checking out. My crew is like we're we know we're done. The paramedic and a lot of the ALS presence on scene are doing everything in their power and taking awesome care and taking charge of doing that you're almost on an island now and you have to now switch your mindset to this is now evidence and i need to secure it exactly and i asked chief chief bean i said i need somebody assigned to me please because we have to get this gear intact as much as possible to my vehicle for secure to get it secure and uh, he assigned somebody who was one of your classmates at the yeah. time. Um, so he grabbed some stuff. I grabbed stuff. And the t- at the time, the Safety One vehicle was a pullout tray pickup truck. Mm-hmm. And the backside couldn't be secure. So I threw it all in the back seat. All of Nate's gear. All of Nate's gear and locked it up. Um, and at that point, also, I couldn't find his coat. Mm. So I ran back around. I'm frantically trying to find his coat. I can't find his coat anywhere. Did I miss it? Is it, st- it didn't come. I mean, I remember it coming off because I assisted with his pants coming off. And um, so I went to the command post. I said, I can't find his coat. I can't find his coat. Well, ultimately, the coat went with him in transport to the hospital. So okay. they were able to secure the coat. And he got back with me and told me that they had found the coat. They had the coat. And at that point, you know, we're, we were, everything was pulled out. We were in defensive mode at that point. And, um, but then there were some firefighters that started to get hurt on the scene. Yeah. We had uh, a firefighter fall off the, through the uh, porch steps, collapsed, and he fell. Yeah. Injured his <clears throat> knee. Yeah. And we had another person that twisted his ankle. Yeah, And at that point, I was getting overwhelmed with the job that I had to do because we were still going to go back in this operation with this fire. Plus, now I have 200 firefighters. Yeah. And I radioed to command, um, you know, we need, a, we need a secondary safety officer at that point. And I called communications and uh, spoke to the captain on duty, and he said, he's there, he's there. Okay. I said, what do you mean he's here? Where is he? (laughs) Well, you know, some changes over time from this line of duty. That night, uh, 
safety officer was dual dispatch with the on-call battalion chief. So, okay. So the on-call battalion probably assumed battalion-level roles instead of actually being the safety? Correct. Gotcha. So you were still on an island by yourself? Yes. Yeah. Kind of found that out a week later after we did our critique. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, you know, I'm, okay, I kick another gear. I take care of this one. Um, of course, the adrenaline's going on this one, and I'm like, look, just fill the – he says, I'm, you know, I'm not going anywhere. That's what he says. I'm not going anywhere. I said, I understand that. I'm fine. He's wrong. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. Let's just get the paperwork filled because adrenaline's going to come down eventually, and this is probably going to hurt. Yeah. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get the other person injured, a stretcher and an ambulance to get him out of there. And um, so at that point... <laughs> There was a decision made to, there was a transfer of command at that point, and uh, everybody on the first alarm assignment was basically taken away at that point. Um, most. Most. Yeah. Um, and I had some trouble with some officers that refused to leave, and, you know, I talked them into leaving. Okay. And uh, I thought I was going to be relieved, actually, you know. Um, because I had evidence that I need, I needed to get paper bags to put the, the gear in at that point. Yeah. And, uh, but with not having, I was told I don't have another safety, so I proceeded around back and assisted for the next three and a half hours with being the safety officer on the fire ground, continuing on the fire ground, but mainly around side Charlie because that's where the bulk of the fire was. That's where we had lines flowing and of course the alarms are getting more alarms are coming in more companies yeah. are coming in mutual aid companies are coming in and we're in a defensive mode at this point and some of these companies from different counties want to go in oh and i'm like we're not going in this is a defensive operation at this point and you know they they didn't want to pay attention so i started putting fire line tape up around the bottom part of the where the pillars were where the um, the deck was to keep them out of there because they were determined to get in that bottom floor, which had already come down. Yeah, there's already a, 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 collapse. a collapse. Yeah, and uh, so you know we've we've had Nate transported, and he'd been pronounced by that point. <laughs> yes, um, and I, and I knew. Yeah. Um. You know, and I'm, now I'm dealing with companies who want to get in there. I'm like, no, we are in a defensive mode. And to one of the companies from Anne Arundel, I said, if you proceed any further, I'm taking you off the fire ground. Point blank. Yeah. And then, you, of course, you heard the annoying noise of the peacocks after that. So. <laughs> yeah. We all talk about the, uh, the exotic farm animals <sighs> at this house. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but you had to make, uh, you have to be stern enough to make that decision. Like, there's been a line of duty death in this home. We've had collapses. I think the roof was. If it hadn't already it had come hole, in, it had a hole in it already. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's defensive. There's master streams on it. We're not going in, and, and you have to be stern enough to say this is what is happening now. Mm-hmm. We know? had, I think, we had a V collapse in the first floor. It just V collapsed in. Yeah, um, and they were determined. They were determined to get in there. I'm like, we're not going in there. Yeah, and finally, I just said, well, we'll pull the fire line tape out, and I'll just rope this off. Mm-hmm. And. uh so eventually, 
you know, the morning did come and I was relieved off the fire ground um, after a deputy realized that I was still there. Yeah, there are a couple of units that were forgotten, you being one of them. Yeah, and um, till this day, I I was walking up the street and uh, I actually went to unlock the truck door. I said, we got to get his gear secure. And at that point, somebody had spun me around. Don't know who it is today. Coat came off, helmet came off, and I was whisked away to 223. Okay, yeah, they got you to the hospital. And they put me in a room next to Nate. Um, Nate had not been, I mean, he had already been pronounced. Yeah. And, and uh, so, yeah, they looked at me, and of course, I was exhausted too, mentally and physically exhausted. Yeah. And uh, I went out to the the emergency room because we had basically confiscated that whole place at that point. Yeah, that whole wing of the ER. Yeah, the ER. And um, I remember sitting in a chair, and one of the fire investigators came over to me. He says, Ronnie, he says, I know you've got a lot on your mind. He says, but I need you to start writing your statement. Yeah. Do you need anything? I said, yeah. A pack of gum and a water. <laughs> and... So, started to write, and uh, um, at that point, excuse me, um, there was somebody assigned to everybody on the fire ground. As far as I was a chief, who played an important role of that that night. Mm-hmm. Um, my liaison was Kevin Henry. Okay. Wherever I went, Kevin Henry was with me. Mm. Um, so I proceeded to write my statement. I was done, and we at that point, uh, the investigation bureau had assembled to the training room at Station 5. That's where they were doing their temporary headquarters at that point. Okay. So, we had all been moved to a library in the hospital after we left the, or after we, Nate, was transported to the ME's office. Okay. We were put in the library at the hospital. Oh. And um, Chief Bean had said a couple words, and, um, you know, I was kind of done with my statement. And they said, can you take it to Station 5? So um, Kevin Henry drove me to Station 5 and uh, dropped it off. And from that point... You know, it was kind of it was over at that point. But mm-hmm. you know, looking back on it, I mean, and I've told this to future candidates that want to be safety officers when they do the um, the uh, in service training that we do. You know, that night, your job's not done once the injury's gone or the the person's gone. You have to switch gears, like you talked about before. Yeah, this is evidence preservation. You've got to completely let that go and concentrate on this that's the next thing that you have to concentrate on and then and then back into the firefight you don't want to make sure anybody's get hurt same and doesn't get hurt anymore either yeah um because there was there was multiple companies there mutual aid companies that i took one company off the line that night i said thank you very much go back to your engine we'll call if you need you next company step up to this line please mm. because you know their equipment wasn't right they were yeah. doing what we were asking them to do. And like you said, we've already had somebody 
mortally injured tonight and now i don't want another one yeah it's such a dynamic position um i think there are some out there that um they just they'll do the paperwork and they're going to do 360s and that's just that's kind of the end of the list but it can be a very dynamic position if it's a big enough fire you you could be interior sure you can be exterior sure you were you were an external set of eyes in the command structure if you say something it trumps everybody according to was it nims yes and you're dealing with injuries apparatus accidents you are dealing with everything from on the car which i, I is such an interesting dynamic of you're dealing with paperwork you're dealing with operations you might deal with a mass casualty and there's a whole section of that car that has flags on it if you have to do a body recovery mm-hmm. and drape mm-hmm. one of the fallen in a flag mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you can't fuck around like simply <laughs> put like there's there it can Yes, it's not the busiest unit, but it can be a very demanding position. It's a very unique position because you can be in, in a lot of different places and fill a lot of different roles. And just as you're saying, all within the same uh, incident. People don't realize the amount of responsibility that a safety officer has. If you're doing your job right. If you're doing it right. Yeah. Um, and you're right. I think some people think, oh, they just drive around and, you know. You can treat it that way. You, you can. can. You can. but. Yeah the night that you get the big one like per se and Mm -hmm. you have to be responsible you better know what to do yes and um i took that job seriously you know Mm -hmm. i really did i enjoyed it um did it frustrate me at times sure some of the stuff that people do it's just like (laughs) how did you figure that to do that right and uh of course you know i'm an old school guy and (laughs) it's just dealing with these younger generations sometimes it's like how did you do that now <laughs> and um but you know and and going to the next level at woodscape i mean i was in with niosh for 45 50 minute interview with niosh yeah most people don't have that uh experience or understanding how was that and uh you know i was it was funny because after we had the fire I was on vacation for nine days. My family was going to Florida the next day. Oh, wow. And my wife actually asked me, are you going to be okay? And I said, yeah, I'll be all right. And I don't know if you remember, but you guys came back to work. Well, you came back the next shift. The next shift. Well, what happened that night? Who showed up with ice cream? Was that you? It was me. Yeah. I vaguely remember now you say that. Yeah, I brought th- yes. I bought three or four and a half gallons of ice cream in yeah. because I didn't want to be by myself that night. I yeah. wanted to be with you guys. I drove all the way from where we lived. Yeah, I got ice cream. I remember sitting in at the dinner table with you guys. And we were eating ice cream. Yeah, because it was so important to me to be with you guys, just to be there. Yeah. Um, not there were a I lot was, of spouses that night, and people in their own right. And this is not everybody. Um, should feel comfortable and experience in it and making decisions that are going to help themselves. I know for us, we wanted to make sure that we could get back on the horse, so mm-hmm, to speak. Mm-hmm. And we all made that conscious decision mm-hmm. to come back together the very next shift, you know, mm-hmm. 72 hours later. Mm-hmm. And had there been anybody that needed to call out or get a trade sure. or whatever, 
that's no shade thrown to them at all. Like we completely understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just say that to say nobody should also suffer in silence. So I'm glad that you had the forethought to be like, let me not just sit here in this empty house. Yeah, because it was it was kind of hard because it, it was all over the news at that point, and yeah. it was still real fresh. And they were gone, and I just I got the ice cream and came to seven. <laughs> <laughs> you always come home, you know. You always come back to home all the time. So, yeah. uh, but like again like i said before the responsibility that the weight that you carry especially in that type of incident mm-hmm. because it's not over for you after that you know the yeah. niosh was next and we had had a fire i was working and uh, chief risley had told me hey you know you, it's your day to talk to niosh mm-hmm. at two o'clock in the afternoon I was like, okay chief i'll be there you know but we ended up having a working kitchen fire right down the street from nine i remember that fire very well yeah and uh so i showed up rather sweaty and dirty and i couldn't get back to the, you know it was like 145 because i'm gonna release you so you can go and uh i sat down with niosh and niosh was there with also with our internal safety review board people some mm-hmm. represents from that and uh peer support people were there and and uh i wasn't nervous but i knew that i was going to be asked some tough questions sure and uh because i was safety and i carried that responsibility seriously and you know i know they're going to ask me a lot of questions yeah so they proceeded to to start asking me these questions and I had to justify everything that was done. Yeah. I had to justify that you laid a line. And they said, well, how do you know? Because I saw them. They passed me in the engine. I was walking down to the incident. Everything had to be justified. I mean, everything that you could think of, I had to justify. Deep in the weeds questions. And it got to the point that I looked at them and I said, uh, gentlemen, do you have a piece of paper and a pen? And they said, sure. So I proceeded to draw the house, and I drew where every single piece of apparatus was, every single line that was pulled, where it was laid, where 51 was on the pool side, where the pool was, drafting out the hydraulic pumps, Mm -hmm. everything. And I said, "Uh, do you have any further questions? And they kind of looked at me. The, the one guy looked at his colleague, and he just looked at him like that. And he well, said, how do you know all this? I'm Rain Man. I said, because that's my job. Right. <laughs> and they just paused for a minute. And I happened to look to my left. There was a chief from Anne Arundel County there. Mm-hmm. And you could just, he didn't say anything, but he just nodded his, like, like you got it. Yeah. And, um... You know, I was allowed to ask some questions, but they were, you know, there were some, I had to justify everything on that fire ground that night. There was yeah. nothing that didn't go unturned that they didn't want to know. They wanted to know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, did you have this delay? Was this a, was this an issue? Was that an issue? And so my, you know, whereas some of the people's interview might've been five, 10, 15 minutes long. Mine was 45 to 50, I think. Yeah. And uh, I was rather exhausted when I left there. Sure. And, um, and, you know, of course, 
it wasn't over then. You know, we went all went through the grieving process with our with our members, and mm-hmm. there was people in my room, and you know, uh, like I've told you before, I said it to you. You know, there's there's a group of guys that they didn't ask to belong in that club, per se. Yeah. But we we're here now. We did what we had to do that night with the best of our ability, what we were presented with, and we all have the most respect and love for one another that night because, yeah. you know, so <clears throat> it um it it deepens the bond. Yes. Um, to ha- have a shared struggle, for lack of better words, uh, creates a familiarity and a connection that most wouldn't understand. Um, And you can take that to a negative place if you allow it. Yes. I believe that because we were uh, open enough with each other and there was enough love and respect for each other as a human being first and then what was accomplished, for lack of better words, it helped us get through that to be able to talk. Whereas you hear from our horror stories of other departments and other incidents where they didn't have that connection, or maybe it was cultural to not talk and discuss those things and people didn't or don't fare as well. A prime example of me. I mean, I could beat myself up and down if, if I would have went left, you know, could I have stopped it? Yeah. yeah. Don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm behind on the eight ball. I'm late in the dispatch. This is the way I, I always, my system, I always did that. Yeah. Could I have stopped it? But I can't, for me, I can't, um, I can't let that beat me up because it would, exactly. pro- it'll kill me. Yes. You know, I did the best I could do that night for what I was presented with. And because and I thought that in the beginning, if I would have went left, could I have stopped this? Hmm. That's a heavy burden on a safety officer, you know, for, I think. For anybody, yeah. For anybody. And um, so, you know, I, I don't think about it that much. I don't I don't think that way. Yeah. Um, there are, um, I think everybody there that were, you know, very much hands-on at some point, so of course, second guess themselves. Whether it's semblances of uh, survivor's guilt, or if it's just um, I could have done this, or I could have done that, or me doing this other thing and making a different decision mm-hmm. caused more uh, undue stress, death, pain, whatever. Um, it's natural, and at the same time, it it provides no good. Uh, there are so many people that have second guessed themselves, myself included. Um, you know, Andy and I have talked about that, you know, you, you know, we made the decisions that we made under the circumstances that we had, which were insane and it is what it is now. And we have to be at peace with that. And with everything that was still accomplished, you can sleep well at night knowing that what you did was validated, mm-hmm. you know, the training, the education, the experience throughout our careers brought us to that point. And with, when we were thrown a shit hand, we still overcame it. Mm-hmm. And there's some validation there. And I don't mean that from an arrogant place. It's just one of those things where you can 
have that little bit of confidence knowing that you spent your time on the fire ground and on the fire floor and on the bay floors doing the right thing and nurturing and curating a career that allowed you to overcome these things, both, you know, physically, mentally, emotionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's people, like I said before, it all points back to uh, responsibility. You have a tremendous responsibility on the fire ground. It's, it's, you know, it, it you really do. Um, because if something goes or wrong or right, you're going to be, they're going to want to know why. What happened? What did you see? What did you observe? You're almost like the, it, you can almost put it as an EMS call when you're doing a consult with a doctor. You're the eyes and ears of the doctor. You have to describe what you're seeing so he can provide any additional care that you've already provided. Well, you're the eyes and ears of really the command because he's in the command, he's in the command post with a buggy wherever he is, a truck. But you're you're constantly doing your 360s, doing reevaluations of, of the conditions on the fire ground. Are the, is the line placement correct? Does it need to be moved? Are are members correctly put in their gear on the? the I mean, it, it's from top to bottom. Yeah, when and you're doing um, your job right, it is a big burden. It's, it's a, a big, big responsibility. It's a big responsibility. It's a big responsibility. And you know, some people just think it's not, but it it really truly is. And that night. It was. Yeah. And like I said, it's a unique position because you're in the hot zone and also part of the command structure. So you are responsible. Mm-hmm. You, you carry a lot, a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. And going back to NIOSH, I've heard horror stories from some people about what they've experienced with the questions and the investigation from NIOSH. My personal experience from that wasn't necessarily a negative one, mm-hmm. um, but they ask you hard questions mm-hmm. and they oh, have yeah. to dig deep. Yeah. Now, we also had a lot of issues with the NIOSH report when it came, well, when Rough Drafts came out. Um, it left a lot to be desired, I think. But I also want to be clear that I've also learned a ton from NIOSH reports and oh, the yeah. near misses. So you can't sit here and say no. that it, it's not, I'm not worth a, anything. I'm not insinuating uh, that. Yeah, no, I want to make sure I'm not either. It's, But it can be hard is I what mean, I'm getting at. When we worked together at 8 in the morning uh, we had our shift transitions in the morning. Yeah. What did you bring to the table every morning? A NIOS report and a and a size up drill and a size up drill. Right. And look what you did for the for those people. You you started their whether they know it or not. You know, getting them prepared for the next step to lieutenant. If they're doing size ups, so it just rolls off their tongue very easily. Mm-hmm. They're not really. I mean, that was every single shift, and um, so. Even though you, they might not be, they don't realize what you were doing, but you're preparing them for the next step. I mean, yeah. that was great. That was a great thing in the morning. Uh, NIOSH report and size up. Yeah. And, and you, that was just you the had tone. To, yeah. That set the tone for the shift. And we would design training off of that and it would start conversations. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was the goal. And, you know, you went to the ambulance crew first because a lot of times the ambulance crew is the first one on the scene. Yeah. Uh, so it's how you methodically pick these people out what you're going to do when you're going to do when you're going to do one. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that was great. I mean, you know, we we had a good shift at eight. Um, we did. We were very, I think we were tight. Yeah, know, yeah. We had little things off, you know, off duty. You had the thing at your house and everybody came. We had a great time. But, yeah. but you know, it was, uh, I can remember the time when I was we were working and <laughs> you were doing the BA drill where everything was 
in pieces on the floor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went in there and you blindfolded me and <laughs> I had to, you know, cause I, I could feel, but I would feel better if I could put it on my face to see what kind of part it was where this needed to be connected and that needed to be connected. Yeah, different tactile cues. Tactile cues. And, um, yeah, you, you, uh, you definitely prepared your people in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. We were fortunate that we weren't the busiest company, no. but we used that to our advantage to do deeper dives on mm-hmm. some bigger skill stuff. And it gave us the opportunity to. So well, even when you were at seven, when you, they were doing force of entry in the dark, yeah. I remember walking in there one day and tink, tink, <laughs> pitch black in here. Yeah. <laughs> you're doing drills in the dark. Yeah. Because, you know, you're not going to be, able, might not be forcing the door in the in the daylight. It might be dark. It's going to be 3 a.m. and you're forcing the basement door. And there's smoke rolling out. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yep. So that was great, too. So, um, no, it, you definitely prepared your people in the right direction. Oh, I appreciate I that. I appreciate that, too. <clears throat> you were, uh, like I said, you were a big support network in that, and you always had our backs um, with that. And that was felt and seen and understood. So you, you know, we had, now nah, should we get through all that? You had a couple more years on the floor, and then, you know, your drop date hits. Retirement comes. You know, we have your your send-off and your goodbyes, but running major incidents, being the countywide safety officer, spending how many years total did you have in the fire service when you added all together? Uh, my PG time and my Howard County time, 30, 33 and a half years. So, you know, over three decades of fire service time, by the time you, you know, your your card gets punched, right? Your ticket gets punched. 2021. Yeah, 2021. Okay, so. Almost three years already. Yeah. How's that transition? Um, some do really well. Some don't do well. How's it been in the beginning? Uh, well, my situation was kind of unique because my wife and children were already in Florida. Yeah. You knew you were going South and I worked 14 months up here by myself. Yeah. So we had COVID, (laughs) you know, and that was a mess. And, um, so our plan was I was going to fly down every six weeks to see them while I flew down once. Wow. So, um, you know, you were guys were there the day I signed my drop paperwork. We took I remember we were still at eight. Yeah, that was a that was a was an emotional day, yes. right? <laughs> and um, so in 2021, um, I'm back at safety one. I'm on C shift, and um, you know it's a day of retirement for me. It was a great day. I saw a lot of people. Um. The next day was the retirees crab feast. Okay. Then I went to that, and that night I left Maryland. Yeah. And I got down to Florida on October the fifth, and uh, you know, like anything, you're excited. It's another chapter in your life, and you're just, you know, you're jazzed up. You're jazzed up, yes, like you say. But uh, you know, um, I get down there and. And then about the second week, it really hit me. Yeah. You're not there anymore. Yeah. You know, what's your identity now? And uh, plus, I moved out of state. I left, you know, my my friends were here, and I moved there. And 
it was a it was a struggling adjustment for me um i've gotten better now um it it took about maybe eight to nine months for me really to accept that i'm moving to a different part you know that mm -hmm. part of my life is over um, I look forward to other things now. I try to look forward to other things, but it was still very. And I told my wife this: it was very important that I come back. Yeah. For right now. Yeah. Um. And I try to come up once or twice a year. Um. Some some years I might miss the year, but I'll definitely be back the next year. Uh. So it's just important for me to see my friends. Yeah. To see the guys that I came in with that that, you know you guys it's just it's just something in my you're part of my family it's extended family and um so I, I don't mean to cut you off i think so many people let's take the fire service out of it uh at some point lose sight of that like if there are people in your circle like everybody's got a circle sometimes people's circles are too big mm -hmm. but whatever the circle is sometimes we lose sight of those relationships that are really important to us. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to do the work to go see people like that's, if it's going to fill your cup, like nurture that and support that and go see those people. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I say that to say, I'm glad you're, you're doing that. Like nobody should feel guilty about that and like buy the plane ticket, go have those experiences, go see those people, mm -hmm. you know, that matters. Yeah, and I know when I go back, I've got we're going to the beach. We're going to do something else. So mm -hmm. we have plans, you know, and and um, so yeah, it was important that I come back. You know, yeah. it's for at least for right now. The you know, I do know that not a lot of people know me in the firehouse anymore because I've been out three years and they pumped out probably six, four or five classes since I've been gone. That's a lot of people, new people, yeah, and. Uh, but I still know some of the officers and the drivers that are here, and I try to make an attempt to come and see them. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just important to me right now. And over time, it'll probably fade, you know, and I, I'll just fade away. <laughs> you, got, you got a new circle. You'll got a new, a new circle. circle of friends. I mean, yeah. we, we just had our retirees luncheon in Florida. Yeah. There's 12, 12 or 13 members that worked for us that live in Florida now full time. We had a contingent, a bunch, a big contingent of Marylanders. They're still work well, recently retired or recently retired, but mm -hmm. still reside in Maryland. They came down. Yeah, um, that was on last Friday. I flew up on Saturday. They Friday we had a great time at where at the venue we had our lunch at, and and it wasn't old fire department stories about what are our families doing, <laughs> what are we doing now, and that's good. And um, it just wasn't old fire department stuff. It was yeah. a lot of. It was just a good time to just be with your, you know, guys that you came in with, um, guys that you trained under, that you worked for in your career, and um, the the person that that put it together. He says, "I look back. It was so much fun just to see guys laughing." And carrying on with one another like we used to in the fire stations. Yeah, it's really it was really, and not only is it therapy, it's just good. It's just a good time for guys. Yeah. you know, some of these guys really need it because they don't see anybody anymore. And yeah. um, so it was it was a good time. It was a really enjoyable time for everybody. That's good. Yeah, it's not. You can talk about the war years, so to speak, yeah, but you're yeah. not. That's not. You're not living 
trying to relive that, you know, it's good that you're talking about the here and now and where life is currently, you know, present day. When you talk, I'm big about preaching like resiliency and durability from experiencing line of duty death and then being, uh, you know, hitting the retirement life, being separated, so to speak, geographically from the department. What have been the things that have kept you a resilient person? You know, you've kind of talked about it, like maintaining relationships, Mm -hmm. um, talking about the hard things, talking to people that have that shared experience. Like, are there anything, is what else are we missing? Well, um, of course my wife and my family, they kept me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, my kids live there now and I, you know, I want to be with my children. I want to be my wife. So they, that's where they wanted to live. And Mm -hmm. I've got to make a little bit of adjustment, but she's okay with me coming back. She realizes that's important to me. That's great. Um, I still stay in contact with guys. I call them on the phone. Yeah. We talk, you know, you know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's a good group. But, so I still have an idea what's going on in the department. And, um, you know, that's, I think that's a big key is you have your little support systems that support you and get you through it. And, um, cause everybody's going to go through it Yeah. and don't say you're not cause you will. Yeah. I, I've talked to a couple guys. I call them about two to three weeks later. How you doing? Yeah. And they're like, I'm doing all right. Did it hit you yet? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. Yeah. And you just talk them, talk to them, mm-hmm. just listen and try to get them through it and tell them about your experience, how you got through it. You know, because um, when you work somewhere for 30 plus years. It's a good chunk of your life. You know, I was 23 years old when I got hired in Howard. I retired at 55. It's a long, long, long time. Yeah. And you still got a lot of, ahead of you. Yeah. Um, so you find some guys you worked with, call them, see how they're doing. They see how you're doing. And, you know, you just listen and sh- laugh with them. And and if you're able, to, if you're fortunate enough to come back for a couple of days, you come back for a couple of days. But like I said, eventually, I mean, it's it's starting to. Like I'm looking forward to going back now. You yeah, <laughs> you, you hit your you, you hit your check boxes. I and hit things the check boxes. You yeah, know, yeah. I'm looking forward to going back. And and yeah. uh, I, like I said, I know we're going to the beach. You know, yeah. so we're gonna go to the beach for the day, and then we got a couple other things planned. So yeah, it, it's and I'm still working. Essentially, I'm working four days a week still. So in the fire service in Florida. Yes, I work for the Kissimmee Fire Department in the logistics division. Yeah. So. Um, you're still scratching the itch, so to speak. Yeah, and that was that was a big thing for me because when I did leave, that was a big void for me to fill because I got back into a fire station around firefighters again. Yeah. And uh, when I saw the job opening, I was like, is this too good to be true? Is this really... And I'm looking at the job description. I'm like, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And I'd fill the application out. I submitted it, of course, electronically, but I didn't hear anything for like three and a half weeks. So I went to the where I, we were living at the time. One of the companies was in my first two area. And I went there once they were gone and I went there again the second time. And as soon as I got out of my car, they roll out. <laughs> so I'm like, 
because I wanted to ask them, is this for real? Is this, are they still looking for this? Mm-hmm. And about a week later, I got a call in for an interview. And um, I'm like, oh, you're still looking. Oh, yes. we Because of COVID, COVID kind of shut them down. People had gotten sick. There was nobody to interview, do the interview because oh, okay. they were all sick. And uh, so I went in a week later for the interview and... You know, the rest is kind of history right now. I'm still working for them. I'm going into my third year for them. So nice, but it's definitely different. It's a, we as a department up here have it tremendously better than the departments in the the southern end of the state in Florida. Yeah, um, they're still running three managing crews and truck crews, and we were fortunate enough to have four. Um, better work hours kelly days there's no work there's a 56 hour work week with no kelly day there yeah it's a long time and pay and stuff so. i think I, i'm glad you said that and that's nothing against any other any other place in the american fire service because sometimes culturally mm-hmm. not even just geographically culturally there are very different parts of the american fire service but i think for us in the mid-atlantic when you zoom out especially for where we work. Um, I just hope the younger generations know how good we have it because it's very easy to zoom in on some of the negativity negativity things, especially when you start um, talking about political issues or union things that may be going on. Um, Our unions are doing great things and our departments are doing great things. And yeah, there's always going to be something going on. Mm -hmm. But when you zoom out and take it in line with what's happening throughout the American Fire Service. Man, Atlanta's got a pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Got a good thing going. I went the first station I visited this week. They kind of asked me, you know, what are you doing there? What What is it like to work there? And I said, the first thing I said was, you guys are very fortunate for what you have. Yeah. Because they don't have that there. Mm-hmm. And they just don't. Yeah. So. Hmm. Uh, we're banging on 90 minutes. We're doing pretty good. Is there uh, anything that you know, you feel compelled to uh, talk about that we missed, that we missed. I want to make sure you hit anything else that. I think that's it. I, I, in closing, I mean, if, for any of the officers that want to pursue that safety officer position, know that you will carry a tremendous amount of responsibility. You can carry that yeah. at any time. Don't take, it for granted. don't take it for granted because that's when you'll get yourself in trouble. Yeah. And, you know, take care of the person that's injured just like you would take care of your family member. The person that's involved in an accident, make sure you do the correct paperwork the correct way. Make sure it's submitted correctly. And, of course, if you're on one of those incidents that I was on, make sure you know what needs to be done. And uh, you can carry it out in a correct manner because you will be asked the tough questions and as a safety officer, you're going to have to know the answers for them. Yeah. For the year. So, yeah. Other than that, it's, it's, you know, it's a very important position. It's not just to drive around a truck like people think. Yeah. Yeah. But, and I feel like you're also going back to you taking care of the people. You are, um, from my experience being in the car, I've really enjoyed it. It's been a, a different set of uh, tasks and responsibilities when I, whenever I do fill in the car. A lot of times you're the first sense of calm that that person might be experiencing, whether it's an injury or an accident. Mm-hmm. 
they're worried about discipline and all the other things that come later down the line and uh you can help defend that person if it gets that or you're just that initial sense of calm like hey let's bring the temperature down mm-hmm. let's zoom out really quick we're okay mm-hmm. and um it just goes back to taking care of your people exactly taking care of your people yeah well appreciate you man i'm glad you came up glad we made time for this thank you for having me love you like a sister (laughs) 